Well, turn your Bibles to the book of Job. I'm glad Darren's excited to be back in Job. So, um, we had a couple weeks of 1 John there. Thankful for uh, Andrew coming down and preaching, and um, he's just been an encouragement to my soul and longtime friend of uh, my wife and myself. But we're back in Job this week, and uh, Job chapters 15 through 17. We'll kind of do what we've been doing with Job. Uh, in the sense that instead of trying to read uh, three chapters right at the start, we'll work our way through the text as we go along. Um, and so hopefully you have your Bibles with you this morning as we work through uh, the book of Job. Really this morning, think about when hurt turns to trust. You know, certain noises can be comforting for one person and frustratingly annoying for someone else. Uh, when I was growing up, I would go stay with my grandparents sometime. Um, really anytime that I could, just, just deeply loved my grandma and grandpa and uh, enjoyed time with them. Um, and they, but they, they had clocks, and my dad loved clocks, and, but my grandparents had this grandfather clock in their living room, and it ticked so loudly. And my normal sleeping place was the living room sofa. Uh, and so it would tick, and then it chimed every 15 minutes. And it was torture as a kid, just absolute abject torture trying to go to sleep. I could never go to sleep. Um, and so I would just lay there. And, and as I got older, I realized I had about a 15-minute gap to try to get to sleep between chiming. And hopefully it'd be, I'd be out enough. And so I remember one time just laying there watching the clock as it went around 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the morning. And finally, I fell asleep with my pillow wrapped around my head and just trying to get out. But then there was another time, other times I would go stay with my grandparents. And they had a, uh, owned some property in West Virginia. And they had a campground there, and um, now my grandmother was one of those, she wanted the campground to feel more like home, uh, and so she would, even on the way out, she would throw grass seed around, so they ended up having to mow, but they had a huge trailer there. I loved going to this campground and staying with them, and so I would go as often as I could, sometimes a few weeks during the summer, uh, and so a couple different times, and, and I remember I would go there, and I always slept so well. Now, now that's shocking, because we're in this little trailer, and my grandfather could snore like the sound of a freight train coming. But laying there in this trailer, and I don't know what the roof was, if it was aluminum or plastic or what, um, but particularly if it rained, if there was dew or any kind of moisture on the trees, it would fall on the roof uh, of this camper. And even inchworms, I mean, as gross as this is, but would fall. But it would just create this almost just natural noise machine. And I just would be out. And I loved it. And I never slept so well uh, as I did when I was at their campground with them, with this camper. And so there's certain noises that can be just frustrating or even frightening. Um, I, I, you know, stayed in my bedroom when I was a kid. We had a large tree outside. I remember it creaking when hurricanes came through and just terrifying. And there's others that can be just strangely soothing. And I just want us to think of it that, that this way with Satan's darts and his arrows that he throws at us. And here we are as believers and as Christians, and we're called to be walking through this world, and we're holding up the shield of faith, and Air, Satan's arrows and his darts are just constantly thumping against the shield. And that's terrifying. And we live in a world where we feel like, as a believer, Satan is out to get us because he is. He's seeking those whom he may devour and whom he may destroy. He has come only to steal, to kill, and destroy. And that's true in your life and in my life. And one of the ways he wants to do that against the children of God is firing these fiery darts, these firing arrows. And we're trying to hold the shield, and every arrow that hits it is a reminder of Satan's attack. And what we'll learn from Job this morning, though, um, 
is that God can take the thumping of those arrows and actually begin, begin to beat out a tune of trust. Uh, it's like the show that my son and I, we went to Universal Studios here a few months ago. It was a special 10-year-old trip. He's almost 12 now, COVID, and cancer delayed it for two years. But they had this one show where these guys come out and they're working, they're all beating on things with tools and instruments. And then slowly, as they are just making what seems like noise, it becomes a song and a tune. And I want you to understand that as Satan is trying to devour you, as he is after you, as he is firing his arrows, throwing his darts at you and me, that God can take the very things that Satan is using to try to destroy us, to transform us, to drive us deeper into hope and trust. And so when the enemy fires darts at the believer, God can actually use it to play a tune of trusting in him. And so we hear in we're chapters 15 through 17. And so how does this all play out? Well, chapter 15, we go back again to one of Job's friends. They're not really friends at this point. I think we can all understand they're really more like enemies because they are speaking to him the words that Satan would actually speak to him if he could or if he chose to. And so they're much more like our cultural term of frenemies than any kind of real friend. They're not seeking at this point to really help Job, although they're convinced that they are, but rather to hurt him and to destroy him. And so we're entering what is known as the second cycle of speeches. We had the first cycle, Eliphaz and Zophar and Bildad, and now we're starting the second cycle, and Eliphaz starts again. And there's every indication, and we'll even see this in one verse, that probably Eliphaz starts because he's the oldest. And he actually says that I, and the, the language it can even be, Bildad and Zophar as well, that we're older than even your father. And so they seem to go from oldest to youngest as they address him. And that's an indication that culturally the idea was the wisdom was with the older. We have what we need to say to you. And I just, I'm just want to own the reality. There's so much I'm learning from Job and realizing um, degrees and time in the pastorate and uh, growing up in church my whole life that age does not free me from the errors of bad counsel. Right? That, that we need to learn to grow and to change and to heed what is going on here. And so chapter 15 is all about Eliphaz going back after Job and attacking him. What is, what is strikingly absent from chapter 15 is any of the compassion that Eliphaz had in his first speech. In his first speech, in the first cycle, Eliphaz ended with some hope. Uh, Job, you should repent and God's going to restore you. None of that is here. Eliphaz is now frustrated. He's annoyed. He's irritated. Maybe you've been in a spot where you've tried to comfort someone or help them. And you just got tired of it. You, you grew weary in doing well, like Paul says not to do in Galatians. And you got sick of having to speak truth. And you just got annoyed. And what came out of you was irritation and harshness. That's what comes out of Eliphaz. And so the first thing you'll see here in verses 1 through 4, and we'll read them here in just a second, but I just want to point out to you, he's basically going to tell Job you're a big windbag. Everything you're saying is worthless. This is what he says, chapter 15, verse 1. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, should a wise man answer with windy knowledge and fill his belly with the east wind? That's a Sirocco wind. That's the kind of wind that where they're located would have come off the desert and doesn't do any good. It's not bringing in seed. It's bringing in uh, scouring, sand, scouring sand that would be like a sandblaster and heat and just oppressiveness. Should a wise man answer with windy knowledge, fill his belly with the east wind? Should he argue an unprofitable talk or in words with which he can do no good? But you are doing away with the fear of God and hindering meditation before God. Eliphaz is angry. 
And what Eliphaz is telling Job is not only are your words empty, but they're dangerous. He says the culmination of everything you're saying, Job, is that it would do away with the fear of God and hinder meditation before God. Let me just put that down in our words. You are destroying worship, Job. Your excuses, Job, your reasons for why you're suffering, your, your response to the confrontation of your friends, Job, you're going to destroy the church. You're going to destroy worship, right? There's no church in Job's day. But that's the mindset, is you are damaging God's name and God's people from worshiping him. Job, you're a heretic. You're a theological problem right now. Why? How? Like, right, Job's lost 10 kids, his wife, all of his goods. He's scraping boils off of his skin. In chapters 16 and 17, he's actually, and the language is just stunning to us, he's actually sewing sackcloth, not just around him, but into his skin. We're like, what? The closest we can come to that is someone with a burn burn victim, them doing skin grafts. And so Job is trying desperately to prevent maggots from entering into his open sores so apparently he's actually trying to just even stitch cloth of some kind maybe even with some kind of medicated ointment this is job's condition and eliphaz says he's destroying worship how because job maintains his innocence because job is saying i did nothing to deserve this remember job hasn't said that he's sinless Job hasn't said that he's perfect. Job hasn't said that he understood everything. In fact, Job has said, I don't understand what's going on. I have a lot of confusion in my heart. I'm filled with all kinds of fears and terrors. I don't know why God doesn't love me anymore. But I didn't do anything to deserve this. And Eliphaz sees that as an incredible risk to theology and worship. You see, because in Eliphaz's world, he's actually saying, what Satan was accusing in the beginning. You remember way back in Job 1, Satan's accusations was that, that Job is just hungry for blessings. He is a gold-digging blessing seeker. He gives sacrifices for what he gets from God. He worships God. Put it in modern-day lingo. He goes to church, has his devotions, and prays his prayers, listens to Christian music, does all the right things, tries not to break the Ten Commandments so that God will bless him. And that's what Satan's accusation was. God's people don't really love you, God. They love you for what they get from you. Take away what they get from you and they won't love you anymore. Well, Job's saying, I still love God even though I get nothing from him. Eliphaz is saying that's going to destroy worship because this is what Eliphaz believes. Eliphaz believes that there's not one person that would truly love and worship God if it didn't get you something here. Why would you and I love and worship God if it doesn't make life better? If it doesn't make me happier? It's like at the core of the prosperity gospel, right? If you have enough faith, you believe enough, then God's going to make you healthy, rich, wealthy, wise, right? That's God's own mission for you to have your best life now. And unfortunately, many of us can reject that premise theologically, but we still wrestle with it internally. And we wrestle with it when bad things, bad things happen to us, and we know we didn't do anything to deserve it, but we question, God, how can this happen? Haven't I done this? Didn't I go to church? Didn't I read my Bible? Didn't I do this? And why is this happening? And we have the same kind of mindset. Eliphaz can't fathom of a concept where somebody loves and obeys God just because they love him. And he's convinced that here for Job, with all of his influence and his respect, even though it's all gone, that Job is dangerous for saying that his suffering is undeserved. 
Why would somebody serve God? Why would you obey? It's the same conflict that Paul runs, in, runs into in Rome. And Paul tells us that we are under grace. When you and I come to Christ and we confess that we're sinners, we recognize that we are sinful people and we deserve wrath and judgment. We turn from our sin. It's what the Bible calls repentance. We put our trust in Christ alone. We ask Him to forgive us of our sins. We commit to following Him. That's salvation. I'm a sinner. Jesus died for me. God, I confess I'm a sinner. I turn from my sin. I put my trust in you instead of in myself. I'm going to follow you. We are under grace. Grace. God is no longer filled with wrath towards us. All of his wrath has been poured upon his son on our behalf. All of the wrath that your sin and my sin deserved, he poured on Jesus on the cross. He blots out our transgressions with his blood. He takes all of Jesus' righteousness and he puts it on my ledger. I had a ledger of nothing but sin debt. He wipes it out. He puts Jesus' righteousness on it. And now I'm under grace. And Paul is preaching that. And this is what the people in Rome said. Paul, if you keep preaching grace, who's going to follow God? What's the motivation? Why would any Christian obey God? Why would any Christian seek to be pure, seek to be holy, seek to be righteous, seek to obey God, seek to worship God, if it's not going to get them something else? And so Paul tells them in Romans 6, what then, are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? In other words, we're free, right? I grew up in a theological system that taught strongly that you could lose your salvation. And so this was pressed deep into my heart as a child growing up. It's why I jokingly say, when did I get saved? I got saved at nine and every week after that. I was a rotten kid. I saw I was a sinner all the time. And it was drilled into me. Like, honestly, it's so funny now that I'm a Baptist pastor, right? It's just funny. Because, like, I, I was taught growing up that all of us, like, I always say you people because you're the Baptist, like, but I'm, I'm one of you now, right? That we all, after church, we all hang out back and, and drank and smoked cigars and did whatever we wanted and played poker and joined the KKK and did whatever we wanted to do. I don't, you know, whatever evil, that's what they did. Because once you're saved, you're always saved and do whatever you want to do. Mm. So the way to control people is to convince them you're going to lose your salvation. Now you better follow Jesus or whack, he's going to hit you with a big stick. And so texts like this where Paul says, no, we're under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law? But under grace by no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness? And what he's saying there, just very simply, it's a deep theology, but what he's telling us is when a person says, for a person to say, I follow Jesus, their fruits will show it. Their life will bear it out. And in fact, at the day of judgment, there will be many, Jesus said, many, not few, many who say, was I not with you? Just because a person says that they're saved doesn't mean they are. That's what Paul's saying here. Claiming it is not the same as it being true in your life. He says the reality is if you and I live as slaves under sin, what we're revealing is that we are still ruled by another master. And so he says instead, you and I as believers should be yielding our bodies. And really the language here you could either say is a farm implement, like a, a hoe, a rake, a, a, a tiller something profitable, or the other way you could translate this language is as a weapon, as a sword, as, as a shield, as, as a javelin, as a bow and arrow. And he's telling us this, which one are you going to yield your bodies, your members to? Are you going to yield them as weapons and as implements of God's growth in his kingdom, of tilling in his field, of fighting his fight? Or are you going to continue to yield your members as instruments of Satan? And he says, this is reveals. 
So Paul's like, I'm not afraid to preach grace because if you know Jesus, guess what? You're going to serve Jesus. But he goes on there, why? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. What's the answer to Eliphaz's anger and fear? Here it is. It's the same one that Paul had to tell the church in Rome. And it's the same one I'm telling you this morning. You don't, you're not called to obey God out of, out of this desperate terror fear that, that, that like he's going to take off his Mr. Rogers cardigan, put on his executioner's robes, and as a saved person somehow kill you. That's not why. You serve him because you love him. This is why Jesus, when he proclaims the gospel, will quickly tell us that you must love me more than father, mother, sister, brother. You can actually proclaim the gospel to someone that way. Do you love Jesus more than you? More than things? More than anyone else? Will you passionately love him? And it's a responsive love because we love him because he first loved us. But Eliphaz has this warped theology. And so he sees Job as a great risk. He doesn't understand what Job is saying. He thinks for Job to say, my suffering is not deserved. I'm an innocent sufferer. He's concerned that that's going to make people stop obeying God. Job, he, Eliphaz wants Job to say, I deserve the boils, the death of ten children, the loss of all things, the abandonment of my wife. I deserve it because I've done some kind of sinful thing. I.e., I now repent so I can get back ten kids, get back a wife, get back my wealth. That's what I'm going to do. That's what Eliphaz wants, and Job won't do it. He presses on there, and he reveals how he thinks evil of Job. There's really four ways that he does it. And he really reveals what he thinks. Verses 5 and 6, Your iniquity teaches your mouth. You chose the arrogant, the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you, and not I. Your own lips testify against you. This is really early theology of what Jesus later will say. By, by your mouth, your heart is revealed. What comes out of our mouths is what's in our heart. We were just studying this in Sunday school this morning. We're working through conflict resolution. And how do you think about conflict in a biblical way? And we understand the things that come out of our mouth. You know, we've all said it. We've been angry. We've said, I didn't mean to say that. Yeah, you did. I don't really think that. Yes, you do. Um, now, I'm not saying you don't have regrets. Like, you wish you hadn't said it. <laughs> um, I'm just not feeling well today. That's true. Still came out of you. And that's what Eliphaz is saying. See, Eliphaz is looking at Job and the things he's hearing from him. Eliphaz already has this theology, theological system, so he just is interpreting Job's words through it. And so he thinks Job is saying these things because Job has a sinful heart. He goes on from the Job, you think you're smarter than you are. Are you the first man who was born? Woo, are you Adam? You know all things. It's so mocking. Were you brought forth before the hills? Have you listened in the counsel of God? Do you limit wisdom to yourself? What do you know that we don't know? What do you understand that is not clear to us? Both the gray-haired and the aged are among us, older than your father. It's an appeal. You should listen to us because we know more. I know more than you do. It's terrifying. How do you maintain your integrity in the face of this? You know, what's Job supposed to do? How's he, resp- how's he supposed to respond to this? Any defense that Job makes just because co- becomes confirmation of what he's being accused of. Eliphaz presses on, though. He says, you're actually unteachable. Are the comforts of God too small for you, the word that deals gently with you? Why does your heart carry you away? Why do your eyes flash? 
that you turn your spirit against God and bring such words out of your mouth. That phrase there, your eyes flash, is an indication that as Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar are talking to Job, they see him get angry. They see him get mad. At least that's how they interpret it. Job, you won't even listen to anything. You're, you're unteachable. Now, Eliphaz plays his trump card, right? Um, he plays the big whammy, right? This is the one to seal the deal. And you might remember, and, and some of you were with us, some of you weren't, way back when we were in the first cycle of speeches, Eliphaz had this demonic vision that he thought was from God. So he appeals to that again. So he's appealed to his old age. He's tried to appeal to Job being teachable. Now in verse 14 through 16, What is man that he can be pure? Who is born of a woman that he can be righteous? Behold, God puts no trust in his holy ones. The heavens are not pure in his sight. How much less one who is abominable and corrupt, a man who drinks injustice like water. And so Eliphaz is convinced. I'm right, you're wrong. Everything Job says is used against him unless he just wholesale. What, you know what Eliphaz wants Job to say? You're right, I'm wrong. I did twisted dealings in my businesses. I didn't love my wife like I should have. My children were wretches, and I pretended all along. Please forgive me. And all of his friends would have been like, our job here is done, great. But none of it's true. So what's Job supposed to do when he's being accused and he hasn't done it? Because if he defends himself, they say that's just a sign of your sinfulness because you're defensive. If Job says your words don't comfort me, then, then they say, well, you know what, because you're unteachable. If Job says, I know more than you do about this situation, they say, you're arrogant. There is no recovery because what they have is what's called confirmation bias. Confirmation of bias, I love that illustration. You have what's objective facts. You have what confirms your beliefs. And so you interpret what confirms what you already believe. We live in a dangerous time right now of a world filled with conspiracy theories. Just, it, it's dangerous. It's dangerous because everybody's an authority, including the Google, right? And so it's like everybody knows as much as everyone else because Google said so or Reddit told me so or whatever else search engine you have. And so what our tendency, and this is what's so hard because it's easy for us to see that with others, but we have to own that this is a sociological and spiritual reality for all of us. If I were going to put it in spiritual terms, I'd put it in these terms. It's called thinking evil of people. You ever done that? I guarantee you have. Guarantee it. I'm the only one in this room that's never done it. You laugh. That's good, because you know that that was sarcasm. <laughs> because what it is, is I put on lenses. I think something to be X about a person. I put on lenses... And now I'm looking for evidence that supports my belief system. I was telling some family this past week that I was raised in a, an incredibly, incredibly, astoundingly racist family. My great-grandfather was a grand wizard in the, can, in the clan. He lynched a man, then fled his town for 30 years. I know more racist jokes than you can imagine. All my family went to church. We'd sit around at reunions, and I'd hear one racist joke after another. I was indoctrinated, deeply instilled into me that African Americans are lazy, they are stupid, and there's every once in a while an exception to the rule. I mean, hammered into me. Not to be trusted, you don't want to work with them. And God did this amazing work in my life, and he plopped me into a Bible college at a church that had a night Bible college, and I went to classes every night, and most commonly, 
The only two white people in that room were me and the professor. And I was typically the youngest by 20 years. And then I was taking Greek and Hebrew. (laughs) And I was not top of the class. Top of the class was Patrick, the former crack-dealing junkie who got saved in the Baltimore Penitentiary, who I couldn't understand half the English he said. Because his only education had been in the Baltimore public education system, and I don't know if you've heard, they were called the city that reads, I don't know where they come up with that phrase, who had the worst illiteracy rate in a, as a city in the nation. And I remember sitting there, and I, mean, I remember the light bulb clicking. I remember being like, I have been duped. But until that moment, there had been an incredible confirmation bias. So if I worked with guys, they were African-American, I felt like they took a long, too long of a break, just fed into my belief system. They're lazy. Confirmation bias. Now, I'm just using it as an example. We do this with all kinds of things, and we do this with suffering people. We believe that they are suffering because they deserve it. And we start looking for evidences to back it up. That's what Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar are doing to Job. Why... What, what happens when we do that? Well, the first thing that happens is we don't have to have any empathy for them. Right? I mean, do you, have, do you find it difficult to have sympathy and empathy for the guy on death row that murdered three people? There's a little bit like you kind of got yourself there. How devastatingly wrong it is that we treat other believers this way. How devastatingly wrong it is that we operate through confirmation bias We just tick off the boxes. Job is not going to be able to do or say anything to dissuade Eliphaz. Nothing. Because anything he says just filters right back into what Eliphaz already believes about him. And so what does that lead Eliphaz to do? To manufacture behavior. He now casts an illustration in a story to describe who he thinks Job really is. I will show you. Hear me. And what I've seen, I will declare. So here's my visual evidence This is what I think. What wise men have been told without hiding it from their fathers, to whom alone the lamb was given, no stranger passed among them. In other words, this is from way back. The wicked man writhes in pain all his days. Who writhes in pain? The wicked. Job, you're wicked. Through all the years that are laid up for the ruthless, dreadful sounds are in his ears, and prosperity the destroyer will come upon him. Who has lost all of his goods and his belongings? Job has. He does not believe that he will return out of darkness. He is marked for the sword. What has Job already been convinced of? I'm just going to die, and I'm just going to go to the death. He wanders abroad for bread, saying, where is it? He knows that a day of darkness is ready at hand. Job has already said, I have no bread to eat. Distress and anguish terrify him. They prevail against him like a king ready for battle, because he has stretched out his hand against God and defies the Almighty running stubbornly against him with a thickly bossed shield because he has covered his face with his fat and gathered fat upon his waist. This is what he's saying. You're suffering because you're an old fat man who went to war with God. Job, you deserve what you're getting. And the quicker you realize it and humble yourself, the better off you'll be. 
Job has tried to be honest about his anxiety, his fears, his depression, his sorrow. But just like in Job's day, too often today, in Christendom, Christendom today, in churches today, it is an unsafe place to admit or to be open about the fact that you struggle with anxiety or depression. Because the assumption is this, if you are anxious and if you are overwhelmingly sad, you've done something to cause it. And if you would simply do X, Y, and Z, you'll feel better. That is the judgment of Eliphaz against Job. That doesn't mean that there aren't things for you and I to grow and do and change when we're wrestling in the midst of fears and overwhelming sadness. It doesn't mean that there's no way to turn. It doesn't mean that there isn't hope from the Bible. It doesn't mean that there aren't steps to take to walk in the mingling of joy and sorrow at the same time. But I am saying this, stop condemning the sorrowing. You will never be able to be a balm of Gilead to people that you are judging harshly in the midst of their sorrowing. What if we would just point to Christ? Does Christ ever wrestle with overwhelming grief? Hmm, Let me think. Sweating great drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane? I think so. Completely abandoned? In the Psalms, talking about how all of his bones are out of joint he's poured out like water how about paul does paul struggle with it read paul's list you know what's shocking you read paul's list of of all of his sufferings in second corinthians do you know what his capstone is because whenever people list you list in a way that that ascends right that magnifies right it's like it's like you guys most of you know me long enough to know um Weird and strange things, lots of strange things. Even my brothers, we were Marco Polo, and it's like a video walkie-talkie. They were like, we know weird things happened to Steve. Steve, we remember a story that one time Dad was on visitation. There was a shooting outside, and he had to do the rest of the visitation. I think that was probably you because weird things happened to you. He was right. We were on church visitation. There was a gang shooting outside. We spent the rest of the church visitation on the living room of this lady's floor for like the next hour until it was safe to go. Weird things happen, right? If I was going to describe to you the painful things that have happened in my life, I don't start with the worst. I end with the worst, right? So I tell you, I fractured my, my thumb. I've had a concussion. I've broken my femur. And you should already be thinking, it gets worse. I had a pinched nerve in my neck so that I had to walk around like this for like a week. And I've had multiple kidney stones, including one two weeks ago. I end with kidney stone. It's like giving birth to a 10-pound bowling ball made of broken glass. It's a pain I would not wish on my worst enemy. I'm convinced if they could make prisoners have, uh, in Guantanamo have kidney stones, we'd have all the information we need. You end with what's worse. You know what Paul ends with? Not nakedness, not beatings. His anxiety for the churches. The constant worry. And so why is it we are so quick to look at people and say, well, you're no Job, you're no Jesus, and you're no Paul? You're right. So should we be shocked that they struggle with fears and sadness? But that's the way we treat them. He doesn't call for Job to repent anymore. He just condemns him. And so what does Job do with us? That's all the arrows drumming against the shield. And I'll be honest with you, I wanted to walk with some length of time through chapter 15. Because I do want to ask you, where are the arrows hitting your shield? And I want you to know you're not alone. And I want you to remind you that Job speaks into your and my suffering. 
And so where do we go? Well, Job chapter 16 becomes a kind of song of hope. It's hard to imagine the deafening sound of these arrows pounding against the shield that he's trying to hold up. Particularly cruel is how Eliphaz uses his own words against him. Job is open. You ever been that way? You ever been open or transparent with someone? Well, you know, I'm just really struggling with overwhelming sadness. Well, you know what the Bible says? The joy of the Lord should be your strength. Thank you. Let me move on to my next counselor, please. Right? Like, where is some kindness? Where is some affection, some love, some tenderness? And so it's particularly cruel because use, Eliphaz uses Job's own words against him. And Job tells us something in the first seven verses I want you to see. Job has two longings. Then Job answered and said, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. I love that. You want to know who the windbag is? Shall windy words have an end? Or what provokes you that you answer? I love that moment, man. Because Job, frankly, is like talking Steve's irritation, right? Like, it's, I'm, I want to be careful here. I'm not sure it's righteous. But what Job is saying is, you want a windbag? You're right, there's a windbag. It's you. And who asked you for your opinion? I also could speak as you do if you were in my place. I could join words together against you and shake my head at you. In other words, I could condemn just like you're condemning. But listen to this in verse 5. I also could do something else. I could strengthen you with my mouth, and the solace of my lips would assuage your pain. If I speak, my pain is not assuaged. And if I forbear, how much of it leaves me? Surely now God has worn me out He has made me desolate. He has made desolate all my company. Job has two desires, and his first desire would be to comfort others. It's amazing that he says this in verse 5. He says, if I could strengthen you with my mouth, the solace of my lips would assuage your pain. Already, Job has begun to learn the comfort of God. Job has already begun to learn what truths someone who's suffering really needs to hear. Remember Eliphaz said, are you as old as we are? We're as old as your dad. Were you born before the hills were made? Eliphaz is basically saying, what do you know that we don't know? Here's what Job is telling him. I know what you don't know because I've suffered. Job has gone into the college, the graduate school, the PhD program of suffering. Job is intimating what Paul will say later in Corinthians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. There is a unique depth that develops in the suffering of the righteous. There is a deeper trust that is developed. There is a language of grief that they learn to speak. The things that I've learned in grief and suffering that I, I've never learned. I, couldn't, I mean, you can read it. And I think you can learn that way, but there's a difference of walking in it. I, I, think, I think years ago, and I don't even know how many years ago, so maybe even as recently as a year or two ago, I don't know. I would have said, you know what, if I called somebody that I knew was suffering or grieving, the Holy Spirit prompts you to reach out to people, text them, whatever, call them. And there was many, many times I probably would not have left a message. Because this way I would have thought, well, I wanted to speak to them in person, and a message just feels impersonal. You know what I've learned? Sometimes I can't answer the phone because I know the sobs would choke out the greeting. I never learned that before deep sorrow. I don't hang up anymore without leaving messages. 
because I can be okay with that. And they can listen to the message later. I've learned that when you're sorrowing deeply, you never escape it. And so if someone says to me, hey, are you sorrowing about this? Or, hey, I was thinking about you. Like, I used to think that, well, maybe they're having a nice moment and I don't want to remind them of their grief. You know what I've learned? Their grief's with them all the time. You're not reminding them of their grief. Be sensitive. They may not want to talk about it all right that moment. That's okay. But don't be intimidated to be kind. There are things you learn, and what Job is telling us, and, and I'm convinced that's why Job is so long. Job isn't like the first three chapters, the last three chapters were all done. When you're walking through deep waters with someone who's suffering deeply, sorrowing in a profound way, you begin to learn things, and that's what Job's saying. Job's saying, if I was sitting across from me, I know what I could say to me right now that would come for me. Job is beginning to actually have a sense of hope without even realizing it because Job is learning in his suffering how he might minister to someone else. The first deep longing of the righteous sufferer is to comfort others. I love how Christopher Ash puts it. Faith or trust turns to outward even in pain. How can God use this in me coming out of me? And there's so many reasons you want that. You want that because when you're suffering deeply, you want there to be some value to it. You want it to count for something. And so if God can just use this for somebody else. Can I just tell you something, though? That takes some steps of faith, folks. That takes some righteous suffering. Because when you're in the midst of suffering, it's easy to just become a black hole. But faith, I think, as Christopher Ash is telling us, and maturing faith. You don't have to be a mature Christian. You can be an immature Christian walking this. But Paul's talking about this Corinthians. Job is pointing this out. My first longing is that I might be able to speak comfort to someone else. But his second longing is to be comforted. It's interesting in verse 6, and just as a reminder, while Job would know what to say to comfort someone else, words are failing him to comfort his own heart. If I speak, my pain is not assuaged. If I forbear, how much of it leaves me? Surely now God has worn me out. He has made desolate all my company. We must preach to our hearts instead of listening to them. But just like lots of my sermons, that sermon can get too long sometimes. And you run out of words to comfort your heart with. It's exhausting to fight for truth. You will never arrive at such a mature place that in grief and suffering, you don't need other faithful believers to minister to your hurt with kindness, love, and truth. Now let me prove that to you. And I can prove it to you just from Job, right? Job is the most blameless, righteous man on the planet. And Job's heart is saying, I need some people to comfort me. That's not immaturity. You can't argue that that's immature. But it's not just him. When Jesus had endured temptation... What does God do? He sends his angels to what? Strengthen and comfort him. When Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, God sent an angel to strengthen him and to comfort him. While at the same time, Jesus rebuked his three closest friends, Peter, James, and John, because they couldn't even stay awake long enough to pray with him. This is a profound truth. There is no one here. There is no one here that is so mature or will ever become so mature that they do not need people speaking comfort 
kindness, and truth in the midst of their grief and sorrow. No one, I'll just put it very plainly to you, we are all hurting for lots of personal and then frankly church reasons. Your pastors are not beyond the sorrows and griefs of that. There is no one here that does not need comfort. I was talking to a friend recently about American Christianity and the way frequently pastors are dealt with. I'm just going to be honest with you. I said, I think frequently in American Christendom, pastors are treated like doctors. You go to your doctor for them to care for you. You seldom ask your doctor, what care do you need? That's their job. But shepherding is not an occupation any more than parenting is. It's a role you fulfill as a sheep. There's no one, do not be ashamed, no matter your age or your maturity level, that you need other people to speak into your heart. You need it. Look, I mean, if Job needed it and Jesus needed it, can't we all just agree we need it? That's just the way it is. Great. Because that's also how he designed it. Job longs to comfort others and to be comforted. He feels incapable of doing so, so where does Job turn? Well, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to read through chapter 17 because the rest of 16 is going to tell you where he turns. What happens in 17 is he goes back down the hole. <laughs> Job gets all anguished again. And this is the cycle of a righteous sufferer. They, they start to come out of the darkness with some truth, but the pain is not gone, and they continue to go right back down. And it feels almost like a roller coaster with ups and down dips, where sometimes Job seems you're like, oh yeah, he's climbing out, he's climbing out, he's climbing out. No, 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 he's sinking back in. A good one if you read, again, I'm not going to read this for time, but you should read Psalm 88 this week because what Job says in Job 17 so closely mirrors the anguish of Psalm 88, which was a song they would have sung as a church. I'm saddened that we don't have a better psalter to sing because so many of the psalms are lament psalms and anguish psalms, and they would actually give words to grief and sorrow. They just would. And so whether it's Job's suffering or the Psalter speaking of suffering, it is this despair, this, this seasons of doubt and discouragement. There are brief respites of truth, limited hope, only to go back to despair. And what Job desperately needed was comforters to come to him. Can I just ask you again to just commit as we study through Job to commit to being a good comforter. Uh, to commit to being one who will speak and minister kind truth. And so with that, though, what's Job's reality? Remember, Eliphaz described him in some not kind ways. Job, you are like an old fat man picking up a shield, a decorative shield, and going to fight against God. Well, listen how Job described Job plays off of this. Oh, you think I'm an old fat man going to war with God with my decorative shield, the kind of shield you can buy at like home goods store. Let me tell you what it's really going on here. And that's what he starts to say here. He has shri- God, he's speaking of, has shriveled me, verse 8, chapter 16, has shriveled me up, which is a witness against me. My leanness has risen up against me. It testifies to my face. You think I'm an old fat man? I'm not even eating. I'm like skin and bones here, dude. He has torn me in his wrath and hated me. He has gnashed his teeth at me. My adversary sharpens his eyes against me. Now I want to pause here. This is where Job is wrong. This is how he feels, but there's a disconnect between how he feels and truth. Does God hate Job? No, that's why chapters 1 through 3 are so helpful for us, right? 
Actually, God loves him deeply. But Job feels when someone's suffering deeply, even a righteous person, they will feel God is against me. He hates me. Men, verse 10, have gaped at me with their mouth. They have struck me insolently on the cheek. They mass themselves together against me. We don't know if Job's just only speaking metaphorically here about his friends, the way they're treating him, or if when he went to the assembly to ask for help, if people actually slapped him. This is eerily reminiscent of someone else standing before the leaders getting slapped, though, isn't it? As Jesus suffered. Verse 11, God gives me up to the ungodly and casts me into the hands of the wicked. I was at ease and he broke me apart. He seized me by the neck and dashed me to pieces. He set me up as his target. His archers surround me. He slashes open my kidneys and does not spare. He pours out my gall on the ground. He breaks me with breach upon breach. He runs upon me like a warrior. I have sewed sackcloth upon my skin, have laid my strength in the dust. My face is red with weeping. My eyelids is deep darkness, although there is no violence in my hands and my prayer is pure. Job's saying, far from an old fat king grabbing his shield off the wall and running to battle, I was like an innocent farmer minding my own business, and he attacked me. And Job's not lying there. Job was a righteous man doing what he was supposed to be doing, and all these things have come upon him. Job is saying that it's like I was in the ICU ward, ward and a Navy SEAL attacked me. Wave after wave of armies have crashed upon me. It's unrelenting. It's nonstop. I can't get any respite from it. These are death blows, and yet I don't die. What in the world is he supposed to do? And he finishes in verse 17 saying, There's no violence in my hands, and my prayer is pure. In other words, I did not deserve this. Hear me again. Hear me again. There, is things, there are things that, that God will discipline us for. God disciplines and he chastens his children, Hebrews 12. No question there. That's not his wrath. That's good parenting. There are times we suffer because we've sinned. Uh, there were people that were even sick and dying in the church because they received communion wrongly. But there is suffering that we will endure that we did not deserve. That's Job's suffering. It's puzzling pain. What did I do for this? If you cannot draw a clear link between what you're suffering and some sin that you've done, then you should probably live in the route this is probably puzzling pain, just like Job's. What do I do with it then? Where do I go? And so Job now has received these arrow. It's been thumping against his shield. He has now said, no, here's the reality of it. Where do I go from here? Verse 18, he starts really thinking about it, though. He says, O earth, cover not my blood, and let, me cr- let my cry find no resting place. Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and he who testifies for me is on high. Who is the witness here? He's, remember, do you remember way back, Eliphaz said there's no mediator for you? And Job says, I wish there was a mediator. So Job's, Eliphaz's accusation made Job think and long for what we actually know as Jesus. But who's the witness here? Let me read it again. O earth, cover not my blood. His blood has spilled out. It's soaking into the ground because he's been attacked as an innocent farmer. Let my cry, the cry of what? The cry of his blood find no resting place. Even now, behold, my witnesses in heaven, the witness of what? His innocent blood. The reality is Job 
begins thinking about the truth of his situation. He says, I need a witness before me in heaven. My friends are useless. I can't defend myself. I need a witness. You know what a witness would be for me? It would be the innocent blood of my life. The fact that I've done nothing to deserve this. That that is screaming to God. How does God view the blood of the instrument? Darren prayed this morning, praise God for the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Praise God for that. But let me just tell you, there are over 60 million, 60 million infants that were slaughtered in this land. That is a lot of innocent bloodshed. Proverbs, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. Or Exodus, you shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge. Do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. God looks harshly upon the shedding of innocent blood. Deuteronomy, lest innocent blood be shed in your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, and so the guilt of bloodshed be upon you. Now you might think, how could Job lean into these promises that happened long after him? Because Job's the first book that was ever written. Well, guess what Job had? Genesis. In Genesis chapter 4, we have this. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Who avenges innocent blood? God does. Job is saying, I didn't do anything to deserve this. My innocent blood is being poured out on the ground. And this is the hope that Job clings to. It's like a guy falling out of a building, grasping at a windowsill. It's like somebody running off a cliff, trying to grab onto a rope. His last, it's somebody drowning, clawing for some kind of safety line. And what he grabs onto in this moment is, I know I'm innocent and I know God is just. What this begins to do is it begins to take all of the attacks of Satan and turn his heart more to trust. How can you and I do that? How can you and I take the attacks of Satan, the attacks of the enemy, and let it turn our hearts to trust? First of all, I want to call you. I'm going to give you two practical steps. Welcome to counseling with Steve in a public setting. For whatever it's worth, and the only value is whatever the word says, but I'm going to tell you the two steps. First of all, be honest and open about the grief and suffering you're experiencing. I don't mean that like you're being closed in line. But I mean it in a way that says that I have got to come to grips with what's really going on in my life. You cannot, you cannot run from the grief and suffering that has happened in your life and find any hope. You will not be able to distract yourself enough, deep enough or long enough to not to deal with your hurt. You're going to have to come to grips with it. And so come honestly before God. The attacks can never be turned to trust if you will not be specific about what the attacks are. And then secondarily, I'm going to give you some examples in a moment. Secondarily, make unashamed requests according to God's character. That is what Job ultimately does. He ultimately says, God, rise up. At the end of chapter 16, he says, Behold, my witness is in heaven. He who testifies for me is on high. My friends scorn me, these losers. My eye pours out tears to God. That he would argue the case of a man with God as a son of man does with his neighbor. For when a few years have come, I shall go the way from which I shall not return. He's saying, I know my blood will cry out before God. 
And so he is asking God to be just. You know what for Job is? You know what the attack is? The attack is, Job, you deserve the pain. I don't know what attack you're experiencing in the midst of your grief right now. I don't know. Maybe it's an attack that says you aren't worth God's attention. He doesn't really care about you. You're irritating to God. He's frustrated with you. You, you're suffering. You're the one that made them do that sinful thing. In other words, you deserve this. You've earned this pain. These are all attacks that go to the very heart of your and my relationship with God. We have to be able to be that specific. We have to be willing to be that honest and open about what really hurts about this. This hurts because I feel unloved. And the reality is this person's words and behavior are actually saying you are an unlovable person. This hurts because you feel alone. And the attacks of the enemy are actually saying you should be alone. You're a toxic. Whatever the attacks are, you're going to have to be very honest about it. And that is very painful and very hard to do. And for most people, most people, I'm just going to come shy of saying all people, but for most people, you probably need to be able to do that with another believer and walk through it. Because when you're in pain, it's like driving through fog and you can't see. And so then what do you do? What does Job do? Job turns to trust. And Job begins to tell his heart, no, God is just. And so then he makes a plea to God. God, you're just, so be just. The truth is, God loves the broken. People look at you and they say, you're so broken. You're right. God loves the broken. (laughs) So God, love me. They look at you and they say that you're not worth it and you're irritating to God and yet God, Galatians, has adopted you. He walked into the orphanage of the universe and he adopted, he chose you. So then God, act like my Abba Father. Be my adopted daddy who will protect me. Make bold requests according to his character. God knows the truth, so reveal it, God. I was struck this week reading in Psalm 86, the last verse. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. You know, it's, it's fascinating. I was at the beach this week and I took a really long walk at one point. And I was just crying out to God. And I just was struggling. I'll just be honest with you, I was struggling. And, and I told God, and one of the requests I made is, I said, Lord, I need to be reminded in a very tangible way of your love for me. And I felt guilty making that request. So that says a lot about me, doesn't it? I felt like that was some wrong demand. I said, God, I just feel so faith weak right now. I need to be reminded of your love. So I went to bed that night, sleepless night, fits woke up in the middle of the night there was a windstorm outside and rain looked at my phone it was right before five in the morning 
And those are the worst times for me. Waking up out of a sleep and I can't go back to sleep. Put my phone down and it buzzed. Texts at five in the morning are rarely good. It was my kid brother. And he said, Steve, I don't know why you need this. But I want to remind you that John the Baptist, Jesus said, was the greatest prophet that ever lived. And at the end of his life, in the midst of suffering, he kept asking Jesus, are you really the one? And Jesus never got mad at him, never got irritated with him. He just sent back the word and said, yes, I am. Are you willing to make bold requests of God? Like the psalmist does here, show me a sign of your favor. So you tell me why my kid brother texted me at five in the morning. Because he's a good brother? Sure. Because Jesus. And I want you to know he can take the thumping of the arrows of the enemy and beat out a tune of trust and love. Father, we thank you.